The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. My name is Anna Wilson. I'm reading from Isaiah 40, chapter 1 through 5. Comfort for the Lord, people. Comfort, comfort. My people, said the Lord, your Lord. Speak tender for Jerusalem and cry to her. That her welfare is in. That's her plenty and property that she has received from the Lord. Hands. Double for all her sin. And voice cries and wilderness has unpaired the Lord. Make the strike the desert the highway of our, for our Lord. Every five shall be left, uh, and every five hill may be below. An even ground shall be level. The ground prays at a friend, and the, the, the glory of God shall be revealed. And all the breasts shall see together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Anna, we honor your courage and your hard work. I know you put a lot of practice into that, and you have served us really well two times this morning. Anna's my Facebook friend. We exchange notes on Facebook on a pretty regular basis, and she's also my real-life friend, and I'm so thankful for you. Uh, My name is Scott. If we haven't met, I know there's some people here visiting for the baptisms and uh, other reasons. And uh, I know that it's not just us gathered here, but there are also uh, people on the other side of that camera back there uh, gathering with us today during this uh, very interesting year of life together and worship. And uh, it is my special privilege, as it is most weeks, to open up the scriptures uh, before us, and uh, the series that we're in right now is called A Weary World Rejoices. We felt like that was an appropriate title for a sermon series during Advent 2020. And so as I begin the message, I would like to start with a quote from Aldous Huxley, uh, who was no friend to Christianity, and yet who had an insight that I think we can all agree with, especially in a year like this one. It's from his book called The Burning Wheel, and he said, maybe this world is another planet's hell. Maybe this world is another planet's hell. And I I think by the look of things, it's easy to understand why somebody in Huxley's position would have this point of view. It is a fact that three-quarters of the world's population lives in misery, Three quarters of the world's population. And it's also a fact that the other 25% of the world knows that it has no guarantee of not ever joining the 75%. One example of this is something that happened, a tragedy, a national tragedy that happened in a town called Newtown, Connecticut at a school called Sandy Hook Elementary. Do you remember that? Six adults, 20 children, went to school one day and never returned because of a senseless, violent act. 
Across America, voices were crying out in the wilderness, where is God? If God exists, where is he? And if he exists, why would he allow something like this to happen? And to the surprise of many people, especially to the surprise and dismay of religious skeptics, every single one of those 20 children's funeral was held at a church. Those families experiencing that level of unspeakable tragedy made a decision not to run away from God, but to run toward him. This and other human tragedies puts what we can call the paradox of Advent on display. The Advent season is actually meant to be a fairly traumatic one because the true spirit of Advent is to try as best we can to put our hearts in the same place that captive Israel was in as they were awaiting the first coming or the first advent of the Savior, Jesus Christ. They were held in captivity for hundreds of years to, to violent Babylon, to, to violent Assyria, and now to violent Rome, uh, now meaning in the New Testament era, with no hope in sight, no signs of relief on the horizon, hearts being torn apart, all hope apparently having been lost, and instead of running away from God, they run to him. This happened uh, in my former church in New York City, Redeemer Presbyterian, which is where we came from uh, almost nine years ago. I can't believe it's been almost a decade uh, since we've had the privilege of, of, of being part of this community here at Christ Pres in this amazing city of Nashville. But at Redeemer, 9-11 happened. 9-11 happened within walking distance of where, a long walk's distance, but walking distance from where uh, the Twin Towers collapsed from another violent, atrocious act where more than 20 lives were lost. And here's part of the Redeemer story. The Sunday before 9-11, there were 2,000 people in worship. It's a big church in New York City. The Sunday after 9-11, there were 5,000 people in church, and it stayed there. Because the human heart is wired not to run away from God in tragedy, but toward him. And today we're going to talk a little bit about that. The setting of Isaiah 40 is actually Isaiah 1 through 39. There's a whole 39 chapters before this one where Isaiah the prophet talks about the evil that's happening and happened to the people of Israel from the outside, the violent Assyrian invasion, and then later the violent Babylonian invasion, and then in the future, the violent Roman captivity, things that have happened to them. But he doesn't stop there. He also talks about the evil that's come out of Israel from the inside. And for 39 chapters, he indicts them for the oppression of the poor, for greed, for racial prejudice, for sexual impurity, marital infidelity, and sacrificing their children for their own convenience and comfort. As a people dwelling in darkness, as a people dealing with the darkness that comes from the outside and the darkness that you're starting to realize comes from within you as well, where's the hope? Where do you go? Where's the comfort? Where's 
the occasion, if, the, if it exists, for renewal. I'm really, really glad you asked that because we get that answer in today's passage. We get a picture of God's true heart, the potential impact on our hearts, and then how it helps us to tend to other hearts. And so, so let's take a look at God's true heart. Chapter 40 is a striking, abrupt pivot for Isaiah. The world has become for Israel like a terrifying wilderness filled with hunger, thirst, disease, death, poverty, strife, division, loneliness, and fear. And the hope that is put before them, it's in verse 5, is glory. The glory, not their glory, but the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and, and all flesh will see it and that is what's going to heal the world. That is what's going to ransom captive Israel and captive hearts everywhere that are running to God instead of away from him in the face of a fallen, sad, tragic, violent world. Why why on earth would glory have anything to do with their hope and with their recovery? Well, it's because of the way that God manifests his glory. You know, as Isaiah 6, we see a very ominous manifestation of God's glory. Holy, 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 right? And Isaiah just, he gets, he's wrecked. He's, he's undone because he sees such a huge gap between him and God. And, and, and instead of holy, holy, holy here, or not instead of, but in addition to, on the other side of the coin of holy, 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 we get the other side of God's glory, comfort, comfort. Whenever you see repetition in the Bible, a word repeated twice, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Martha, Martha, Holy, 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 comfort, comfort. We are meant to interpret that as multiple exclamation points coming after the word. Repetition means strong, bold emphasis in the biblical language. He says, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. These words, my people and your God, this is to suggest, this is God speaking, I am still yours, Israel, after all of these years. You need to know, I am still yours. And you are still mine. You have left me many times, but I've never left you. You have betrayed me many times, but I've never betrayed you. And that defines our relationship. And then it says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem? They're, They're exiled to places far away from Jerusalem, and yet it says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Well, here's what's happening. God is speaking from Jerusalem, which is where the temple is located. And to speak to Jerusalem from Jerusalem for God would be to speak to his own heart. And and what does God hold in his own heart? His captive, scattered people. While they may be physically and even spiritually miles and miles away from him, he has never stopped holding them in his heart. It's reminiscent of the father in Luke chapter 15 with respect to his prodigal son who has insulted the family name, who has squandered his inheritance, spent it on prostitutes and wild living. And at the first distant glimpse of that son, the father calls for a party, calls for a celebration. Before that son repents, the son doesn't come home because he's remorseful. He doesn't come home because he's sorry for what he's done to the family. He comes home because he's hungry. He comes home because he's in danger. He's in trouble. He's isolated. He's alone. He doesn't know where else to go. And so he knows that family's a place that has to take you in. 
And so he goes home. And before there's any apology, we don't even know if there ever was an apology. The father throws a party. Is the one who is regarded as dead is alive again to us. The one who is lost from us is now found by us. The older brother hates that, by the way. Moralists do not like grace, especially toward other people. I'll get to that in a moment. But he goes on, Isaiah does, and says, Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. What what does this mean, double? Well, most of the commentaries are suggesting that, that this is Isaiah talking about what theologians call double imputation. It's a theological term. It's summarized in 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the New Testament where it says that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, the interpretation of this, I'll boil it down to, to very, very simple terms. God took everything wrong in us and blamed it on Jesus. And then he took everything right in Jesus, which is essentially everything about Jesus, and gave us credit for it, clothed us with it. The Bible talks about us being clothed, covered with the righteousness of Christ. And so when God looks at us, he sees objects of his affection, objects of his delight, not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of the goodness of Christ toward us. Double imputation. And so this is a word for people then and now who might feel hesitant, about running toward church and the tragedy that is 2020. Who am I to run toward church? I've been bailing on church for the last eight years in the name of this, that, or the other. I've had no interest in God. I've had no interest in church. I've had no interest in committing myself to anything or anyone but me. But now I feel this need for community. I feel this need to, to hear a voice from the outside of my own narcissism. I need a healing voice. I need a voice that says comfort, comfort. And I I don't know of any places except churches that will dogmatically say comfort, comfort and that have to take you in (laughs) when you come. Who am I to now go to church when I'm needy? Well, that's the point. People who aren't needy have no business in church because church has nothing to say. Jesus has nothing to say to people who don't recognize their own neediness. Martin Lloyd-Jones recognized this in his book, Spiritual Depression, which is essentially a, a collection of sermons. There's one sermon in there where he says that the average Christian, this is a pastor's, a, a seasoned pastor's observation. He says, in my observation, the average Christian is filled with more anxiety and insecurity than non-Christians are. Interesting. Then Lloyd-Jones said that he he noticed that many Christians are touchy, insecure, hypersensitive to criticism, prone to gossip. They get their feelings hurt easily. And all of these, he he sums it up, are signs of feeling ashamed. Because that's what we want to do with our shame. We want to put it on somebody else. Shame is incredibly uncomfortable, and we don't want to hold it. We, We want to take it and find another place for it. And the other place for it is on somebody else. And what Lloyd-Jones concluded as to why Christians are more touchy than non-Christians in his experience is this. 
He says, these Christians fail to understand the doubleness of the salvation of Christ. In other words, they mentally assent that they're forgiven, but they daily forget that they're delighted in. They daily forget that they've been credited with all of the goodness of Christ. And so the answer to your sin problem is not better behavior on your part. The answer to your sin problem is is more of an experience of grace. The answer to the shame that you feel is not getting your act together. The answer is comfort, comfort. I am yours, you are mine. Your sin, your shame is not a barrier. It's actually the occasion for God's tender words to be spoken. Not a barrier, but the occasion for God to move towards you in loving care and healing pursuit. His mercy overrules the shame of your sin. It's not the sin of your shame that overrules his mercy. His mercy overrules your sin and your shame. And what better motive and reason in the world is there to flee our sin and our shame but that his mercy overrules it. Here's the truth about God. He has very poor taste. There are certain communities of people who don't like that. Moralists do not like, religious moralists do not like the fact that God has bad taste. But prostitutes and death row inmates and addicts, they're really, really thankful that God has poor taste. That as Garth Brooks has wisely said, he's got friends in low places. In the Old Testament, Abraham is a terrible husband. Moses has a terrible temper. David is a terrible adulterer and murderer. Rahab is a prostitute. And in the New Testament, we find Jesus just picking it up from where where Yahweh left off. His closest company is kept with prostitutes and tax collectors and cowards and xenophobes and racists and violent people like Saul of Tarsus. Every kind of sinner. There's room in God's heart for every kind of sinner. And this is what presents the problem for moralists. Because moralists like to discriminate. Moralists like to separate the world between the good people and the bad people. The right people and the wrong people. The virtuous people and the vicious people. But God says, I've got friends in low places. And in fact, that's the only place where I have friends. I avoid the high and mighty and proud places, like the plague. God has bad tastes. How about you? Do you have bad taste? Will you accept anyone into your company because God calls them family? I hope you will. I hope you will. That's his true heart. The potential impact of this on our hearts, that's the second point today. The potential impact on our our hearts is that we will be empowered to live with joy and hope even in a tragic place. Isaiah lived his whole life in a tragic place. He starts in chapter 6 with the tragedy of his own recognition of the gap that exists between him, a prophet, a holy man, a preacher, and God, and, and he goes straight for the most virtuous part of himself, and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Now that I've seen the king, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. What am I going to do? And what does God do? Comfort, comfort. 
Comfort, comfort. I'm going to send my angel. My angel's going to pronounce over you that your guilt has been removed and your sin has been atoned for. Atoned for? Double payment covered by another. Absorbed by another. And from that point forward, here's the interesting biographical fact about Isaiah's life. Two things from that point forward begin to occur in Isaiah's life. His circumstances become progressively more and more tragic until the day of his death. And his joy and hope and contentment become progressively amplified until the day of his death. Tragedy and joy growing together. It reminds me of this uh, story I read uh, about uh, the Allied troops after World War II. They found an inscription written on a basement wall by someone who was, during the Holocaust, hiding from the Nazi Gestapo. And here's the inscription on that wall from the person who was hiding from the Nazis. I believe in the sun even when it is not shining. I believe in love even when feeling it not. I believe in God even when God is silent. God has been silent for hundreds of years with respect to captive Israel. God had been silent for 400 or more years when the angel came and announced to Mary her future trauma. You're going to be the God-bearer, the Theotokos, the, the, the mother of the Holy Spirit's son. You're going to bear all of the trauma of that. You're going to bear all of the, the misjudgments about you and your character. You're going to wear the scarlet letter for the rest of your life in, in, in people's eyes who, who don't believe the real story. And you're going to watch him die in his early 30s. And you're going to be a widow when you do. And Jesus is going to have to hand you over to his closest friend, John, to take you in. There's a trauma to the Advent story. And yet, the whole thing, this inscription on the, on the basement wall in Nazi Germany, reminds, at least reminds me of that movie Singing in the Rain. I'm not sure if that Led Zeppelin song, Fool in the Rain, is about this, this movie. But that's my favorite Led Zeppelin song because it's so filled with paradox, just like Advent. Because it's the most optimistic sounding song. I don't know if there's a minor key in the whole song, and yet it's about a tragic heartbreak of a situation. Then you watch the movie Singing in the Rain, and you've got this guy, he looks like a complete fool. It's a huge thunderstorm, it's ominous, and he's, he's just skipping, I'm singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. Well, you think he's a fool in the rain until you understand the context of his joy. The context of his joy is that he's fallen in love with somebody and she has fallen in love with him. And, and that overrides every storm in his life. When the comforts of Christ are our context, when we become fools in love around the comfort, comfort, my people, of Christ, it gives us this uncanny ability to weather storms, whatever those storms look like, as hopeful realists. Christians are the most realistic, like, like true, pure, biblical Christians are the most realistic people in the world about things like evil, violence, death, suffering, sin, shame, guilt, 
We are free to be honest about these things because we are covered. We don't need to BS people anymore. We don't need to do image management and brand management anymore. We are covered with a double salvation. So we can tell the truth. You know, Luther does in the hymn that we're going to close this service with when he says, Though this world with devils filled shall threaten to undo us, Luther knew a thing or two about suffering in a world with devils filled. But we're also hopeful. We don't become cynics. We don't become stoics. We become hopeful in the face of even tragedy. Because as Luther goes on in that same hymn, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. There's a future. And it's guaranteed. Gospel hope is different than secular hope. Secular hope is a maybe kind of hope. Gospel hope is a sure kind of hope. It's anchored in the fact that, that, that this king has come up from the dead. He's that powerful. He's that certain in keeping his promises. You know, we see this in the language of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, In my experience, I'm pressed, I'm perplexed, I'm persecuted, I'm struck down, I face death all day long. And then he defines all of these rainstorms as light and momentary afflictions. Is, is he checking out of reality here, or is there something else? Well, there's a context. He's a fool in love. He's a fool for hope. He says, these are all light and momentary afflictions compared to the weight or the glory, the gravity of glory. There's that word again. That awaits in the next advent, in the next coming of Christ. I said last night at the, at the, the Christmas event Fleming Rutledge was, was thumbing through the pages of her hymnal one day, and, and of, of the 24 Advent hymns in her hymnal, she counted that 23 of those 24 were about the second coming of Christ. In other words, the first coming is, is there for us to look forward, not, not necessarily as much back as forward to the next coming of Christ, where he really will and fully and truly make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This is one of a pastor's occupational privileges. As we get to see sometimes in real time how hope and realism play themselves out together as this paradox under Christ. Here are a few names. Jan, John, Wendy, Susan, Carrie. I could keep going. These are people whose bedsides and, and wheelchairs I sat next to as they were in the process of dying. They were all members of Christ Presbyterian Church, and all of them faced their pending death with what I would call a sober joy. They were sober because this is not the way things are meant to be. Cancer is not the way that it's meant to be, ultimately, in God's world. A wheelchair is not the way it's meant to be. Death, sorrow, mourning, crying, pain, not the way it's meant to be, and yet joy. Some of them even say, I cannot wait to see the Lord's face. I cannot wait to be in his presence. There's such a certainty that, that, that grows and grows and grows, even as it did with Isaiah. The worse things got, the greater the certainty became. Proof, perhaps, that the Advent story is true. 
How else do you explain that kind of transformation in a realistic human heart? And then finally, how it all helps us tend to other hearts. You know, voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's a statement to the people of God. And then he goes on. But I'll close with this question, trying to answer this question from the text. How is the glory of God revealed in a world that is still with devils filled? The the not yet of what theologians call the already and the not yet. The already, Christ has come, his kingdom is here. And the not yet, it's not completely taken over every square inch yet. And yet it will. The glory of God is revealed first in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Luke 2 says that Jesus is the glory of God's people. John 1 says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And one of the ways that the glory of God is revealed, especially through Jesus Christ, is through comfort. Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. Or over Jerusalem, prodigal Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, exclamation point, repetition again. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to comfort you. How I have longed to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chicks. Even when you're not willing, I have that longing. I still hold you in my heart, Jerusalem. And then through the people of Christ, finally. These words, valley, mountain, hill, ground, rough places, these are all relational metaphors. Fleming Rutledge says this is the proof of Christmas. She says, even the tiniest sign of reconciliation, the smallest hint of forgiveness, the most minuscule glimmer of kindness is a sign that God is with us, our Lord Emmanuel. How does this play itself out in community? We become offensively inclusive. Our former them becomes our us because God has friends in low places. You don't have a choice on that matter, by the way. You don't have a choice. You don't get to decide who you include and exclude among the people that God includes. You don't have a choice. You're putting yourself above God if you try to do that stuff. Ian Cron, in one of his songs, says, When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. He's writing from a Christian perspective. Garth Brooks, I've got friends in low places. Donald Carson, great theologian. Christians are a band of natural enemies who've come to love one another for Jesus' sake. It's what they did with an incestuous man in the church at Corinth. First Corinthians, Paul doubles down on the church. You tell this man it's completely out of line with the gospel to do what he's doing with his father's wife, with his stepmother. You, you get in his face and you tell him it is completely out of line. It is a complete violation of community. It is a complete violation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians, we find the man has responded to the community pressure. And he's filled with remorse, even on the edge of self-loathing. And what does Paul say then? 2 Corinthians 1 and 2, comfort him. Comfort him. For such a one as this, you should comfort him. 
Turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. That's what the Lord's table is, by the way. It's not only Jesus Christ reaffirming his love for us, which is a marvelous thing, but on the basis of Jesus' insistence of, 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 to hold us in his heart and to reaffirm his love for us over and over and over and over again, even when we live so much of our lives in Isaiah 1 through 39, far be it from us, far be it from us to say or behave toward any part of Jesus' bride. Otherwise, this is a table for people in low places. Because when you're a family, and that's what a church is, you have to take people in. You got no choice. If they give their hearts in faith to Jesus, if they throw themselves upon his comfort from a low place, whether they're in that low place because of a pandemic, whether they're running from consequences and, and Jesus is their last resort, or, or whether they, they've just had a heart aflame with God, hopefully by some of these baptized kids. And, you know, Chad, maybe there's going to be, you know, hundreds of others, you know, father, son, mother, daughter, child scenarios where we have this generational perpetuity of running to Jesus from a low and weak and meek and lowly place. That's where the supper is. He serves the supper on the ground. Not in the air. And the good news is, we can all get to the ground. Not all of us can get up in the air. And so, can I ask those of you who are ready to come to Jesus from a low place for comfort to stand with me and affirm your faith together with me as we recite the Apostles' Creed. Daughters and sons of God, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have friends in low places. We thank you for your poor taste, but it's, it's really not poor taste because your, your taste is refined by what we're covered by. And that's the beauty and righteousness and double salvation of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you judge us on the basis of Christ's life and of Christ's decisions and of Christ's pathway and of Christ's motives and not on the basis of our own. Thank you, Father. We are glad to be included. And we are glad, Father, we pray, to also include every kind of person that you desire to be also with us at your table. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Set apart this bread, this cup, consecrate it. And even as our bodies are nourished by the bread and the cup, may our souls be nourished 
by the person and work of Jesus Christ, through the work of his Holy Spirit, to the glory of God the Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.